Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. never heard it say that before <laughs> so that's good here we go mark i think we are rolling we are live thanks for being here uh how you doing tonight doing great thanks for having me on the show sir mark so i guess a little bit of your background what i know about you, you know you got the you're the author of the career toolkit but it seems like before that though i read that you were on a dark web chasing out terrorists and criminals so i guess let's uh maybe start at day one and give the audience a little bit of a background about yourself and like how all this came about Sure. I have this very interesting dual career. I graduated from MIT back in the 90s during the dot-com era. Sure. And I realized early on I wanted to become not just a software engineer, but a CTO, a chief technology officer. As I began to understand what that meant, I realized it wasn't just about being the best engineer. Sure, I had to be good at that. But to be a leader, there were all these other skills, leadership among them, but networking, negotiating, team building, communicating, no one ever taught that to me. So as I set out on my path, I realized I had to develop these skills in myself mm. and quickly realized the skills are not just for the executives, but for everyone. So I started to train up my team. As I was doing that at MIT, we had done surveys and found these are the same skills companies want, not just for MIT alums, not just for college students, but universally, Companies want these skills, but no one's teaching it to them. So that put me on this parallel path. My primary path, I've been building startup companies, a lot of classic tech startups, helping some Fortune 500s play startup. I do cybersecurity, including chasing terrorists and criminals on the dark web. <laughs> but in parallel, I've been teaching at MIT for over 20 years, where I helped to create a class known as the Career Success Accelerator. And now I also have the book, the app, and the speaking that I do in parallel to building tech companies. Wow. So did you ever see yourself doing this all, all at a young age or did you just kind of fall into it? The latter part, no. I knew from when I was young, I was going into science or engineering. I got into computers okay. in, in high school, but I never would have thought I'm writing a book. And if I am, it would be on ooh, soft skills. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I agree. But no, uh, I can relate to you. I mean, you know, when I was going through my college, you know, era as far as my bachelor's and master's, um, more so my bachelor's, I never really knew or understood the importance of networking and communicating, like you said, until it was almost too late for myself. And and yeah, and, I, and it was, I feel like it was, I don't want to say it was not taught, but I want to say it was, you know, we heard about it, of course, but I never really took it serious, I guess. And until, like I said, until it was too late, I was like, man, what was I doing? Why was I doing that? And I don't know if it's just not pressed hard enough or it's just kind of just uh, not overshadowed, but it's just kind of like, well, here it is. This will get you to point A to point B to point C, but whatever. If you don't want to go do it, don't worry about it. You know, does that kind of make sense what I'm trying to say? It's like it's not it was not really pressed upon me as a student, I feel like. to go. And that, that's universally true. We don't teach it. 
formally at all. Maybe we have an interview workshop in college, sure. but we don't normally teach it. You get a little bit in an MBA program where they have former formal leadership classes. Even then, I know people come out and say, yeah, I had the class, but I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of these skills, networking, it's not like we haven't heard of it. We all heard of it and they told us it was important. But did anyone actually sit you down and say, let's talk about the mechanics of how to do it, how to be successful? Mm-hmm. They don't. They assume you learn by osmosis. <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, like I said, there was a few random workshops there, but it was never really, you know, pressed for us to go. And I never really cared about going. There was like really no incentive to go because I was kind of like, uh, I was, maybe I was just a know-it-all at the time, you know, so, uh, I can figure it out. And, but I remember having one of my first graduate interviews and it was a phone interview and I had, it was an absolute bomb. You know, I actually was when I started taking it more serious. And after I'd graduated, it's like, man, you know, I had no clue what I was saying to those, you know, alumni and those teachers during that interview. And I felt wrecked. And so that's when I first started to take it more on myself to actually start reading books and learn from others. Like, hey, you know, what should I say or give examples during certain questions and how should I present myself and my, use my experience for me rather than just say these really vague blanket statements that really pertain to nothing. And now here's the irony. You felt, as many do in our first few interviews, oh, wow, I I really don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Guess what? On the other side of the table, they don't know what they're doing either. (laughs) Many of us in our jobs, we get put into interviews for hiring our coworkers. Oh, we're bringing in this candidate. Hey, why don't you sit down with her? Go interview her. Let me know what you think. Yeah. And that's literally all we do to train people. Say, here you go. There's the room. Imagine if you said to a 16-year-old kid, hey, okay, you're 16, you're ready to drive. So you've been in a car before, right? You get it, steering wheel, brake, gas. Okay, here you go. Here are the keys. Best of luck to you. Oh, yeah. We'd never do that with our kids in a car, but that's what we do with our coworkers. Oh, you've been interviewed before, right? You get Ask some questions. Okay, here you go. Best of luck to you. We provide no training and so many people as interviewers don't know what they're doing. They don't know what to ask. They don't know how to evaluate people. That's another really important skill that we just completely ignore. Yeah, no, I agree hundred percent. And do you, do you like the, the interview format styles? I mean, do you think you get the most out of a candidate uh, from interviewing them? And I guess what I'm saying is because when I was studying and learning these questions and learning what, how I should answer them, you know, I never felt like I was my true authentic self. I was just trying to say things that they just wanted to hear. It, I don't think the interview is the best way to do it, but it is probably the most efficient. The best way would be spend a week with this person, sure. do stuff together, but that's not always practical. Now, you bring up a good point that anyone with some interview training, we've all been taught, how do you answer this question? How do you answer what's your weakness? How do you answer what's important to you? Or if you were a vegetable, what would you be? <laughs> Practice this. What I like to do is ask those questions indirectly. Okay. Here's an example. Instead of saying, what's important to you? You go, oh, well, learning or working hard. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. We, We went to the same seminar. Instead, I might ask a question such as, if you were hiring someone for this role, what would you look at? Hmm. And often when people say, oh, well, I want someone who's very technical or someone who works well with others, that's indicating what they themselves think is important. You're getting the same thing indirectly. Now, maybe over time, this will get out and people will learn how to answer that. But as of today, people don't yet recognize it's the same question done in a different way. And so they don't put on their planned interviewing hat and I get a more genuine answer. Would that always be considered a loaded question? You think? I don't think it's a, a loaded question. I'm just I'm asking it differently. Gotcha. It's almost like phrasing what would you do versus what wouldn't you do. Mm-hmm. They're both fair questions, but you're looking at it from a very different perspective. Yeah. And well, I guess where I get that from is that, you know, in one of my interviews, actually, and this was one of our professional interviews, I work in higher education when uh, I guess I'm not podcasting, but, uh, you know, one of my for an interview that I think I asked one of the uh, the supervisors, saying, hey, what are you looking for into an ideal candidate? And I think he told me that was a loaded question. So I was wondering, hmm, I didn't think – I was kind of like what you were kind of saying. I was like, well, I didn't see this a loaded question, but I was just kind of wanting to see what you thought in your eyes would be the you know, great candidate. Does that kind of make sense? 
Yeah, I ask that question in every interview I'm in as a candidate. I want to know what you're looking for, because if you tell me you are looking for certain things, I know that's not me. If you say the ideal candidate is in here at 6 a.m. every morning, I'm not a morning person. (laughs) I am so far from your ideal candidate. I'll work hard. I'm smart, but I am not a morning person. If that's really important to the job, I'm not the person for you. And let's not bring me into that job where I'm not going to be close to the ideal. I think that is a totally fair question to ask, and everyone should ask that question. And by the way, when the hiring manager can't ask that question or seems to stumble, that's a red flag. They have not fully thought about the job. Ooh, yeah. You know, I'm glad you said that because, you know, I like asking questions like that because not only am I getting an interview, but I'm kind of interviewing them at the same time because I want to know if it's if I'm going to be a good fit, like you said, for this position, if it's actually going to fit my needs and wants. And based on certain questions that I ask, you know, like you said, like if I'm not a morning person or if I'm not a, you know, a person who's not X, Y, and Z, it's like, well, I'm not sure I really want this job anymore anyway. Exactly. And it's just as important for the company that you ask those questions because we don't want to, okay, I'm going to grill you. I'm going to really see if you're worthy of this job, but maybe we're not worthy of you. And if we bring you in and you get demotivated, you get disinclined a month or two into it, you're going to leave. We both waste a lot of time. So let's really make sure this is a fit. Think of it just like when you go on dates, you don't say like, okay, hey, let's see if you're worthy of dating me. I'm just going to grill you. And okay, the end of the date, fine, fine. (laughs) You get a second date with me. I don't even care if you want it. I've decided. It is a two-way street. It's a full relationship. We have to treat it that way. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. Somebody told me, I forgot when or where I heard this, but uh, they told me first dates are just interviews. So I was like, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it is. I've gotten a lot of interviews and a lot of first dates and there is a lot of similarities. Uh, So yeah, and I agree, uh, definitely a lot of similarities. But is there actually a true interview style that colleges or even high school should be teaching or is this something you know like i said i was trying to learn my own style learning from books and just from what i was reading from other people but it's how do people find their own inter- interview style like you know or find the best way to be themselves you know is it just trial and error it's a lot of practice interviewing is actually a form of public speaking okay. most people don't think of it this way but it is And so let's talk about public speaking for a moment because it will apply to interviews. The number one problem people have when public speaking is fear. It's the fear of, I'm going to say something stupid. I forgot to button my pants. I will trip over the microphone cord. And that holds us back. And as we're speaking, we're we're nervous. And what am I supposed to be saying? And, oh, um, and and now um, I'm just, uh, I'm I'm, I'm lost. Mm -hmm. Once you gain confidence, You're just more relaxed on the stage and you're ready to go. And as you practice your public speaking, you'll find you get more relaxed. You can focus more on the question, not thinking about, wait, is is my hair right? And, oh, did I I button my collar? You can relax and focus on the content. Now, interviewing is a form of public speaking, both in the sense that you are literally speaking. Now, the public might just be one person. You might be seated. It might be a little more impromptu than rehearsed speech. But it's a lot of the same techniques. And certainly, we don't want to be in an interview talking monotone, just like we don't want to be on the stage talking monotone. But the same thing's true. We get nervous in interviews, and then we um, forget what uh, what we're going to say. And oh, boy, and, and oh, my God, is he looking at me? And what's happening? And so just like we would practice for public speaking, we would rehearse what we might want to say. We'd get feedback. Hey, can you watch my speech and give me some feedback? We can use these same techniques for interviewing. We can just practice. I know what questions you're going to ask me. You're going to ask me, why did you leave your last job? And tell me about a time you failed. I can practice those. I'm not going to remember them word for word the same way I don't memorize my speech word for word. But I see it coming and I've rehearsed and I practice. I've gotten feedback from others. And now I'm more relaxed when I answer those questions. Mm. Yeah. And, and not only this public speaking, but this is one of the reasons why I started a podcast is just that you know, helping me articulate my thoughts out and talk to complete, you know, it still blows my mind. I get on here and I talk to a complete stranger that, you know, we've just exchanged a couple of emails with and here I go having a full blown conversation. But, you know, like I said, when I was having those or doing interviews or even in just regular conversation, I was always afraid of, you know, screwing up my words or saying something stupid or even on here sometimes. And, but, 
you know, it's one of those things that if I keep practicing it more often and, you know, putting in my work, putting in the hours that, you know, you eventually build a sense of comfortness with it, you know, just talking with other people. Have you read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Outliers book? I have. Yeah. And I think one of, one of his principles is putting in your 10,000 hours of to, uh, you know, any craft that you're doing, whether it be playing a sport or public speaking or interviewing. If you put in your hours, obviously, you're going to get a lot, a lot better at it over time. One note about the 10,000 hours, it has certain applicability, but it's not universal. Ooh. What do we mean by that? If you are becoming a tennis player or a chess player or violin, it is that practice. It's that muscle memory. And that applies to things we think about. Chess, it's not your physical muscles, but it is the, I recognize these patterns. I know how to do it. Sure. But then there are other things where it's just, it's not quite so linear and often having different experiences and bringing together the key elements is what matters. Now, I'll give you an example. The best thing that happened to improve my public speaking, I used to be terrible at it. And I did debate for a while, and that helped. And I did other things, and it helped move me along. I took some classes. The best thing I ever did was becoming a competitive ballroom dancer. Nice. Now, in dancing, there is no speaking. You're not on there saying, hey, hold the music. I want to do a little speech now. Sure. But what you're doing is you're on the floor, literally being judged. I'm dancing around the floor, and there are eyes on me, and they are marking me yes to get into the next round or no. And I'm screwing up a lot yeah. over and over. And what did it for me is recognizing, you know what? I'm screwing up. Oh, I'm not going to make that recall. I'm not going to make the next round. And that's okay. I failed. But that's okay. People judged me to be poor. And that's okay. I can survive. One of the things I love about competitive ballroom, a handful of times in all my years of competing, I've seen people fall. Very rarely, but it happens. And when they fall, as they get back up, the entire audience cheers for them. They applaud and say, hey, you know, we're with you. We're supporting you. And once you literally fall or you screw up that move and go, oh, I just did that. I could see that judge was watching me and you move on. That was the best thing for me. It wasn't about having so many hours. It was about coming to that realization of this is not the end of the world. So when I do a speech and something bad happens to me, I've had the projectors go down. Oh, now we need to call it <laughs> AP. Had all sorts of problems you know what? It's not the end of the world. People in the audience aren't saying, Mark, you're an idiot. They're saying, oh, boy, bad luck. Murphy's Law, we've all been there. Sure. And that's what made a difference. So 10,000 hours applies to some things, but for others, it's getting the right mental shift. And that's going to lead you much further than just the repetition. Yeah, mindset's everything. And I've learned that too. And, you know, I'm a, I, I compete in CrossFit from time to time. And it's one of those things that if I've had a bad... Uh, a bad workout or a bad day or whatever I've learned to, you know, it used to suck at first. It was hard for me to get, you know, get my head out of the, or get myself out of my own way. But, you know, once I learned that, okay, learn from your mistakes, move on. It's not the end of the world. There's going to be other competitions. There's going to be other whatever, but you, I usually use those as a, a kind of a motivating factor for me or a learning tool at the same time. So, okay. Now how can I get better? How can I not make that same mistake again? But yeah, I've been there. It sucks when you make a mistake and, you know, you you look like the fool or the idiot or whatever. But um, yeah, a lot of people, I don't think, you know, I was having that discussion tonight at the gym with somebody about having a competitive mindset or you're not even having to compete, but just, you know, automatically not saying that, or like you said that, oh, it's the end of the world. I can never do that. I'm never want to do that. Or I'm never going to try again, but it's really this kind of reversing that and using that as, like I said, I use it as a motivation factor. It's like, okay, well it got me this time, but it won't get me next time. Exactly. I knew a couple who in their training always took their worst moves and put it into their ballroom routine to say, we're going to take our weaknesses and turn it into our strengths. What's it like? How'd you get into ballroom dancing? I mean, was that something you've always done or was that just something, again, you just kind of got into along the way or what? There's a longer backstory, but the short version is I started really at MIT now, MIT, this is going to surprise a lot of people, we have one of the best sports programs in the country, not the top athletes, although we've had some terrific world-class athletes, sure. but we have more athletes, I believe, on a more sports teams per capita or more of the number of sports teams than most other universities out there. And so we have a lot of sports teams. 
mostly we're D3, although we tend to do well in sports that aren't standard. Obviously, we're not known for football. <laughs> we're not known for soccer or lacrosse. The pistol team at MIT, the uh, rifle team, they were fantastic. Sailing team was strong. I think our bowling team was number one. Nice. And ballroom dancing, it's not an NCAA sport, which meant even as staff and an alum, I could still be on the team. That was actually great for team continuity because it meant older experienced people were around and we can continue to coach the younger folks and really create a good culture. We have had national champions come out of the MIT team and it was one of the best things I ever did. Wow. I mean, there's so much to it, you know, so I feel like some people would probably immediately shoot it down, but you know, I mean, I've, I've said on here before, you know, you and I, you know, we're not ballroom dancing, but we're doing a dance right now. You know, we're both listening intensely or intensively what we're both going to, you know, what you're saying. And it's my turn to speak and vice versa. And then we're like, you know, bouncing ideas off each other. It's kind of the same way as a dance, you know, getting a flow with your partner and understanding like which way we're going to move and things that does that kind of make sense? What I'm trying to say, like move, it, and lead and yeah, count. to. Well, the I'll say in, in terms of the athleticism, the best description I ever heard is. Imagine running a 400 meter race in a tuxedo while smiling and balancing a plate on your head and doing it to the music. That is round one of a weekend long competition. By the way, if you're a woman, you're doing it backwards and in heels. Oh, wow. <laughs> Let's add to the challenges right there. Man, yeah. So that's a comp that's what a, a competition's like a whole weekend. Or it's, it's typically a weekend. You'll go into a city or a college and you've got two days, maybe two and a half days of events because you're doing it at different levels of experience in the different styles of ballroom dancing. And so you're just constantly on and off the floor. Yeah. Nice. Man. I've uh, read a couple of people or heard, talked to a couple of people doing salsa comp or salsa dancing competitions and stuff. And it seems like a wild time, man. You know, so it seems like, uh, It'd be fun to do, at least try it out, you know, and see how things go. Uh, never been a dancer myself, but it just, you know, I feel like a lot of people, like I said, to shoot that down, but there's a lot of, it's be a lot of fun to it, you know, a lot of good times and a lot, it, a lot harder than what some people might seem. Thank you. It is. And you meet great people as you do in any sport. Yep. This sport tends to be a little more gender balanced than most others. Sure, sure. And I just have wonderful friends and I had a really great time doing it. Well, let's go back a little bit. You know, I don't think everybody wants to hear us talk about ballroom dancing, but so as far as somebody coming up in college nowadays, you know, what is your advice for getting better at interviews and networking? And even if they're not a person who they see as, you know, can open up to people, might have a little social anxiety, you know, hard to put themselves out there, so to speak. That's a broad question. It starts with practice. It starts with doing it. It starts with getting out on the floor and screwing up and being judged and saying it's not the end of the world. And you'll go to a networking event and you'll say the wrong thing and think, oh, man, I'm an idiot. Sure. And then you'll move on. And that experience, that practice is going to help. Equally important is having the right mindsets for these things. Now, networking, so many people get this wrong. So many people think networking is I'm going to an event and I'm just collecting business cards. I'm just going, hey, let me get your business card and your business card. And great, I got your business card. And okay, I've networked with all these people. Mm -hmm. Oh, we add you all on LinkedIn. Now I'm really networked. You know, adding someone on LinkedIn, that's a lot like saying, if I add you on LinkedIn, you're in my network. I swipe right on you on Tinder and now you're my girlfriend. <laughs> but that's what we're doing. That makes you know, sense. Me. Yeah, you'd laugh at me for saying, look, I swipe right. She's yeah. my girlfriend. And yet, oh, but we connect on LinkedIn. He's in my network. Mm. In both cases, that's step one. Okay. That's it. We swipe right. There's some interest, but now we have to build that relationship. Right. And the same thing is true in networking. It's not collecting business cards. It's building relationships, and that takes time. And so it's having that attitude, having that mindset of, Hey, you're someone interesting. I want to meet you. I want to get to know you. Now, maybe I get bored after a few minutes, just like, hey, maybe halfway through that date, you're like, yeah, okay, got to get out of here. You don't have to hit off with everyone, but you're going to find lots of people. And unlike dating, you don't have to just stick to one. You can meet lots of people and build relationships with lots of people. And it's not about what can you do for me now? So many people have the mindset, okay, I need a job. Hey, can you get me a job? No. Okay, great. Next. Hey, how about you? Can you get me a job? What about you over there? Nope. Okay, move on. 
they're looking for that easy win. They're looking for what can you give me instead of, hey, let's build a relationship. Let's see where it goes. Yeah. When you need a favor, if you need to move this weekend, who are you going to ask for help? The guy you met at a bar last night and had a drink with or your friends from high school? They're the ones with whom you have that relationship. And so that's what you want to focus on. Build those relationships. Yeah. yeah. And building those relationships can obviously lead to some bigger opportunities down the road too. And that's what I've always been told to never burn a bridge, no matter what you do. Right. And the key is, of course, when you're going for the, hey, can you help me find a job? You're thinking, oh, I don't see immediate value. I'm moving on. But when you build a relationship, there might be no value. And that's okay. I'm not saying what can I get? I'm saying the relationship is valuable and maybe something more will come from it down the road. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, definitely down the road. Something, if you do your right, if you do everything right, you know, good work ethic, hit the right people. Yeah, usually those little bridges build into something bigger as far as my experience. And But do you, do you think a lot of the mindset with, I don't want to put this all completely on students, but maybe just, Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. and generally speaking with people that it's about who you know, not what you know. Do you agree with that statement? Boy, certainly I think you should know something. You should have some value to add. Sure. But knowing the right people can open doors. It can do things for you that just raw, hey, I'm smarter or more experienced for doing this, might not be able to get. Mm -hmm. So here's an example. Suppose you and I are applying for a job, same job, we have roughly the same background, but you have a slightly better track record. If you're coming out of college, maybe your GPA is slightly higher than mine. So you look and say, okay, well, we've taken roughly the same classes, we know roughly the same things, but your GPA is a 3.5 and mine's a 3.3. Well, obviously, you're the better candidate. Objectively, we can see this, you've got the better grades. Sure. But now imagine, I'm best friends with the CEO's son. Now you can say, wait a second, that's nepotism, right? Oh, you're just going in because you got the friendship. Maybe if he's just saying, well, yeah, fine, whatever else, you know my son, so I'll hire you, that's nepotism. But what if I've known his son since we were five years old? I've been over at their house many times. I've known him, he's been at my parents' house. He knows me. He knows I'm a hard worker. He knows I'm reliable. He knows I'm trustworthy. He knows all these good things about me, things that aren't always so clear during the interview. You don't really get to know someone's character well during the interview. He's got to know my character over years. And so, yeah, you might have the slightly higher GPA, but those other traits are really worth it. And that extra brain power, that extra GPA, it's nice, but these other things are more important. And I'm a known quantity you're an unknown. Not that you're not those things, that you don't have them, mm -hmm. but it's hard to tell. But for me, he knows. He says, that is valuable. That's the type of person I want in the company, and I know this. So my network signals that. Now, it could be that I am friends with the CEO's son. It could be that my friend works at the company, and she says, hey, you've got to give Mark an interview. I know his resume doesn't look exactly right, but trust me, I know him. He's a good fit, or he has the experience, or something else. So the network lets us signal things that aren't always so obvious through conventional channels. And that's why networking can be so useful. Yeah. And, and not only just with networking, but and there's some certain cases, and you might, you know, have seen this too, but working in higher education that 
Well, is MIT private or is it a public school? I can't remember. Is it private? Uh, we're a private university. That's what I thought. We, we are a land grant, but we're a private university. Right. But, you know, of course, you know, where I, I work at, you know, we have to follow, you know, specific state guidelines and that in during an interviewing or hiring process, you know, we have to follow a certain specific matrix, you know, and if they don't meet, you know, requirement A, B, and C, then they're automatically out depending on if they have a higher GPA or not even a higher degree or more experience or whatever, that's not even relevant. So that's one thing that, um, kind of blows me off by the interviewing process at that level. And I don't guess that's obviously that's probably not everywhere, but you know, and that's something I can relate to really personal right now, just because it's something going on in my life as far as like, there's a certain position that's came open and I don't want to say too much, but you know, we're two people are going to apply for it and they're all basically on the same level, just like you said, but ultimately depending on the, this matrix, it's going to come down to, Oh, well, who's got the background. Oh, you pass this step. Now you automatically go into the phone interview stage or whatever. So yeah, and it's kind of one of those things that, well, maybe the best candidates not getting it based on, you know, external skills, but on paper that, oh, well, just because they have skills A, B, and C, that's the only reason this might happen. Yeah. It's it's tough because we know historically we were making these arbitrary decisions based on your race, your gender, your religion, all sorts of things that really weren't relevant. And so we said, okay, how do we pull that out? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the way to do that is to say, we're going to use only objective measurements. And that does correct for these wrong biases about, uh, we're only hiring these types of people, but it doesn't take into account some of these other subtle things. And so it, it's hard to find that balance. And we see that in, basically public hiring, government hiring, or higher ed and public universities. And it's hard to find the right balance for that. Yeah. Does that bring up like certain ethics among interviews and or interviewees and stuff like that, that, you know, uh, I guess, you know, that certain people who are applying for a position are going to have to face in some form of another? Well, certainly, so I talk about ethics in chapter 10 of the book, because ethics really come in to our daily lives in ways we don't even think about. So hiring is one. Now, there's some basics we could say, oh, I only want to hire people of this race, of this gender. And we know that's clearly wrong. Right. But then you can get more subtle things. Hey, you know what? I want to get my friend into this job, not because she's the best qualified but you know what? I need political allies. If I get her in, she's going to help me fight this political battle. So now am I putting my needs in front of the company's needs? Mm. Am I using her? Did I tell her, by the way, there's a fight going on and I expect you to take sides? Yeah. Is it ethical for me to do so? In all companies, there's politics and you don't have visibility before you set foot in there. So really, you're no worse off than if you went somewhere else. Does she owe me anything in that political fight or any other way because I got her in? So there are all these subtle things. And when we try to use, for example, we're seeing a lot in hiring where people are saying, oh, we're going to use AI. We're going to use all these algorithms. We're going to take out that human bias. Well, the way algorithms work is we say we come up with an algorithm and we have to train it on data. We have to give it experience. Sure. Think about when you were learning to tie your shoe or drive a car, you'd overcorrect and you'd say, oh, wait, I turned too much. I did it wrong. I just want to turn a little. And you practice and you get experience of right and wrong. And that's what we do with our data sets. We say these are good hires. These are bad hires. Well, now when we look at the history of hiring and we need a lot of data, it's not just the last three people we hired. It has to be the last 30,000. Right. Well, the last 30,000 people we hire, that's going back 10, 20, 30 years. And guess what? We had some biases back then. We weren't perfect. We're still not perfect today. We're trying to be better. But back then, we weren't necessarily trying as much. And so we have a hidden bias. I'll give you an example from a slightly different field but that applies. Back in the 1960s and 50s, there was a term called redlining. Okay. And bank could draw a red line around a certain neighborhood. And if you were not the right race, you could not get a loan for that neighborhood. Blatant discrimination. Sure. We got rid of this, thankfully, with a lot of legislation in the 1960s. When we take historical banking data, 
And I'm certain right now, no bank is ever saying these days, hey, you know, only people of a certain color. We've gotten rid of that. But when we pull in the historical data, it starts to say people from these neighborhoods or people in this zip code. Well, historically, we haven't given them loans. These are better. We have more data about this. So we bring that bias back in. And the same thing happens with our hiring. Well, we've historically hired more males or males have historically gotten to more senior positions. So males are obviously better. Yeah. Well, the reason I got to more senior positions is we had a bias and that's now ingrained into our algorithm. And we have to take that into account in all the algorithms and all the things we do. We have to recognize the data may have a bias in them. Do you think that's the future of the job market and interviews and you know, trying to obtain a certain specific career path? Is that algorithms and AI are going to be the judges on if you get the job or not, rather than just, you know, a complete human person. It's just all going to be data driven in that sense that, you know, we'll never even see a person when we're being interviewed that the computer will go ahead and like, oh, I guess he's good to go or she's good to go. The thing with most computers is you get diminishing returns. So can they start to do some initial filters? I've learned when I screen candidates, Often in a market where I have candidates coming to me, not in markets like this where I'm desperate for them, when I have a lot coming to me, I'll do a 15-minute phone screen. And often, very quickly, I can filter out half the candidates. Even though the resume looked good, you can just tell within a few minutes on the phone. I could probably get software to do that for me. I could probably hit a couple things to do that. Can it tell me when I'm down to my final three candidates, which one is going to be best? At no time soon especially for the more experienced senior roles, you need the experience of understanding those roles and really getting into the people and who they are. But we can use software to do the basics. Just like when you think about driving, we now have software. It can drive the car on the highway. It can park the car. Mm -hmm. There's definitely some extreme conditions where the cars are making mistakes human wouldn't. So it's those edge cases. It's those final not the most common cases where you really need the humans to have the judgment. And we're going to see that with algorithms and hiring and a whole bunch of other areas. Yeah. It just makes you wonder where the future, I guess, is going to go just because obviously based on the pandemic and everything, you know, people have learned that, you know, they can basically do a hybrid type job and do either 50, 60% of from the house and with some of it from the office and, you know, learn to uh, kind of, but, you know, decrease that carbon footprint, so to speak. And so it's just one of me, like, you know, and especially now with Apple inventing their new AI or not AI, their AR goggles or VR goggles, whatever they are, that you'll be able to have, you know, podcasts, basically, like you and I would be virtually together rather than just to, through a screen, which is kind of, uh, which we, I think it would be neat to learn and see about, but it's just one of me, like, where is the future going to go as far as careers and technology and and jobs are we going to see more people not going to the office or just mainly being able to do interviews through these AI headsets and so to speak and wherever that wherever that takes us you know so your question about being in offices we're at an interesting inflection point we're recording this in the summer of 2022 sure and people have been asking me for the past two years is this a point where we go hybrid or virtual are we out of the office and my answer has been Maybe. And it still is maybe. Here's the thing. Employees say, I can work from home. We know this. You've seen me do it for years. What's the problem? Employers say, yes, but first, as a manager, it's harder for me because it's not just, did you do the report? Did you put the TPS cover on it? Great. We can measure that remotely. But we're also asking like, are you a good team player? How did you interact with others? Do you really understand why we're putting the cover on the TPS report? Mm -hmm. Those are things that are best understood in face-to-face or things like when I would walk out and I could see my team and just, you feel what, what's the mood? Are they arguing with each other? Is everyone happy? Is everyone depressed? Cause we just delivered some bad quarterly results. It's harder to feel that. I can't tell that for a bunch of tiny faces on a zoom screen. (laughs) So managers benefit from having you in the office. Sure. And then we get to questions of, okay, tactically day-to-day, you can again put out your work. But that long-term, how are we growing? How are we innovating? How are those 
inter-office relationships. I don't mean dating. I mean, your internal networking. Sure. How are those developing while we're all at home? And we don't know. So offices want you in. Now, we've seen the employees have had the power the last two years. Right. Hey, I'm staying home. If you don't like it, good luck finding a replacement. Right now, as we're recording in the summer of 2022, we're seeing the markets obviously drop. There's a question, will we enter recession? Labor market has still been strong. If we see the labor market invert, if it gets weak, if we start to see lots of layoffs, if we start to see the employers having the power, they're going to start to require us to come back in. And people are going to say, yes, sir, thank you for the job. Hmm. So I think if we can keep this hybrid model for about another two to three years, that's when we'll really be ingrained and become the norm. And we'll also see this isn't universal. In industries like tech, I was running a virtual company back in 2017, and we've been doing offshoring for years before that. We've already shifted, and this was just the final nail in the coffin. Other industries are a little slower on the curve, but we'll see this change in where it crystallizes and solidifies. That's TBD, depending on the labor market. Yeah, that's a good point, Mark. And you know, I guess what I was getting at, you know, I was reading about this one model that I forgot who's adopt, adopting this right now, but it was one of those things, like you said, that they want to be able to see the work culture, see what the mood's like in the office. But it was also one of those things that, you know, they wanted everybody to still be able to work from home because, you know, all their all the employees said that, you know, they worked 100% better from the house or whatever. But it was one of those things that, you know, not everybody would collaborate during a Zoom call or whatever. So I think his model was that, you know, every six weeks or eight weeks, whatever it was, he would bring them back together for like a, a team building concept or whatever. What you, you get a, a retreat? Oh, there we go, a retreat. And then send them back on to uh, their actual wherever they work, prefer to work if it was at home or in the office. And that seemed to like keep doing that cycling down the road when everyone started to get away from like a bad mood or their, you know, the work motivation went downhill, bring them back in, get the, get the camaraderie back up and then set out on their ways. And I just thought that might be another model. Most people might try to adapt in the future, but I don't know. We do see that companies have done that. I believe GitHub has done that for many years. They've been a virtual company for, I think over a decade at my virtual company, we'd get the executive team together every about six weeks or so. Yeah. We get the whole company together a little less frequently, but here's something to keep in mind. There's no one size fits all. Sure. If you have a team that's been working together for the past five years and their work is, I'm going to say fairly rote. So imagine, for example, the accounting team and they're just doing the monthly monthly close and what's the monthly reports look like and did we pay our bills and what's our receivables. There's not a lot of, hey, I really need your insight on this. We know what we're doing. You know, hey, here's the numbers you need and get back to me with what I need. We don't need as much collaboration. If you have a newer team, we just hired a bunch of people we've never even met in person, or we're trying to design something new, maybe we're coming up with a new product, we really need closer collaboration and that involves more time together. So what we might see is instead of, well, we're going getting together every six weeks, or we do two days in the office a week, we might say, you know, for the start of a project, maybe it's going to be four days in the office. And then we're down to two during the bulk of it where we kind of know what we're doing. And then at the end where it's always crazy or trying to hit the deadline, we're back in the office maybe three days a week. And so we'll find that teams, not the company level, but individual team levels need to adjust for what works for them. Yeah. And it is going off that. And this is one of the things I've always kind of try to get a uh, comprehension on was that, you know, when doing these podcasts virtually compared to if I were actually doing them in person, like what would the energy be like? What would the chemistry be like? Would it be vibing, you know, better? Would it be a little bit off? Would it, you know, would it be a completely different conversation, whether it be in person or not? And, and I think, I, I, you know, I can't decide what I, I'm still on the fence about it, but the ones I have done in person, yeah, you, it's a different energy. You could read people's body language and even like, you know, through the screen, I can, we can still, you know, if you're leaning in or leaning far back, kind of picking up those signals. But, you know, again, just with that, making that into the workplace, it's one of those type things. It's like, oh, wait, am I really feeling this person out? Am I really understanding how they feel and what their needs and wants are? Am I as a leader giving them what they need? You know, things like that. There's also something I learned recently, we're going to wind up being almost a little more formal because of the delay. 
when we're in person, we'll talk over each other, interrupt each other. Obviously, the more we know each other, the more comfortable we'll be doing that. But there is a subtle, almost imperceptible delay. We've got another, I think it's about 90 some milliseconds that get added just due to the delay of the internet signal. Oh. And what happens, it's long enough that we say, because I think the normal delay in conversation in English speech is around 50 milliseconds or so. Okay. At the end of 50 milliseconds, I know, did you finish speaking? Are you about to start to see your lips move? But now I go, oh, wait, I think at an unconscious level, okay, his lips stopped moving, but wait, I know there's a delay. And so we kind of hold ourselves back. We're a little more restrained. Oh, is, is he done? I don't want to talk over him. And so what happens is this is one of the reasons we have Zoom fatigue. It's one of the theories behind it, that we have to put that extra energy in what was so natural before, because for last 100,000 years, I could tell when you were done speaking, mm -hmm. now my brain isn't wired to what I'm seeing. Ooh, that's a great point, Mark. I didn't even think about it like that. Oh, I'm going to have to remember that for sure. So um, I know we're getting a little short on time here, but I wanted to ask you, just because I think you're the first person that I've truly met and knowing about that you've had experience with the dark web. And I know real quick, I mean, what was that experience like? You know, I know you said you were tracking down criminal criminals and stuff, but what, yeah, what was it like in, on, you know, in the early, what'd you say? Were you, were you doing it very early on? Or are you still doing it? Or you don't have to, you don't have to say anything you don't want to say, but just, you know, kind of give us what it's like. You know, here's the thing. It's, it sounds exciting. It's another office job. Okay. At the end of the day, that's it. It's not like I'm, on the dark web, I am virtually, but it's like being a spy in the field versus being a spy in the back office and doing the data analyst. <laughs> so we would go out onto the dark web and do intelligence gathering. Now, here's the thing about the dark web. The dark web isn't inherently bad. There's a question I always get asked, like, oh, it's, it sounds really scary. Dark web just means it's something that isn't easily indexed. It uses okay. a different protocol than what, say, Google uses to search the internet. And so there's no basic index for it. Okay. Okay. That's not good or bad, like any tool. Here's the thing. The dark web, it's like a dark alley. A dark alley isn't necessarily bad, but if you're doing something bad, you're probably choosing to do it in the dark alley and not the middle of the well-lit street. Sure. And that's why all the bad things that happen on the web. Well, not all of them. Unfortunately, too much happens on the surface web, but a lot of the really bad things happens on the dark web. And so we would go in and use certain techniques to collect intelligence and figure out who's doing what okay. and try to create predictive models to help various groups prevent problems from happening. Yeah, I think the media plays that out to where automatically you say dark web that it's automatically exactly what you said like I, I and that's exactly what was my thought process was it before you said that that if you go on a dark web you're trying to do something bad or very illegal and yeah i guess that's the media has portrayed it but i guess it's just like anything else it's a tool but it just depends how you're using that tool does that kind of make sense if i said back alleys of marrakesh that gives you some certain bias because of how the media or Hollywood has played it up. And so, yes, exactly. I think that's that's what they've done with the dark web. Oh. Mark, how long did it take you to write the book? The book only took me a couple months to write, about four or five months to write. But the caveat is, this is stuff I've been teaching for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So I had 20 years to understand what it is, how to get right. In fact, a comment I often get is, I'm reading the book, and I read something, I have a question, and then the next page you answer it. Well, that's not magic. That's because for 20 years, I know when I say this, here's the next question. So it was just a few months to put it down on paper. And then, of course, the editing process and the whole publishing process. Gotcha. Mark, this has been great. If, uh, if people want to find you, they want to find the book and all, if you want to plug anything, feel free to do it right now. There's a couple things that you might want to take away from this. So first, my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. And if you go there, you can see where to buy the book, Amazon, of course, and other places. There's a whole bunch of other free resources on there. I put out new articles every week. Some of what we talked about in terms of offices and office culture, I get into all that in my writing. 
There is a free resources page where I have a number of free resources to help you in your interviews, in building company culture, in trying to build up these skills for yourself and your teammates around you, all completely free. I don't even gate it with an email. Just take it, use it. Nice. There's also a free app, the Career Toolkit app, which contains a lot of the advice in the book, but it's in app form. It's in your pocket. So when you go to a networking event and you're saying, Hey, wait a second. What were those networking tips you've got in your pocket? You can pull it out right then there, or you can set for the passive learning mode that each day at a time you set, it's going to push one of the tips for you. Now, if you like that idea, we actually have a general version called Brain Bump. It's available on the Apple and Android store as it's a career toolkit app. And that has my book plus other books, podcasts, and we're constantly adding new types of content. So the things that you read and hear, you can bear retain using either that just-in-time learning or that passive learning. So Brain Bump, that's from Cognosco Media, C-O-G-N-O-S-C-O media.com. And if you look on Apple or Google, the Career Toolkit app and Brain Bump, although I think on Apple, you have to do it without a space, on Android, it, it does have a space. Apple's a little tricky. You can also search for Cognosco Media. Cool. Great. Mark, this was great. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Anything else you want to say or uh, you good right there? Anything else you need to promote? Those are the big things. But if you have any feedback, if you like what you heard, if you have questions, please feel free to reach out. There are contact pages on both those sites, thecareertoolkitbook.com and cognoscomedia.com. I'd love to hear from you. Cool. Great, Mark. Again, thanks, man. This was great. So, okay. Good night, everybody. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.